Happy Father's Day. You may be seated. I get up to preach and my daughter and wife leave. I'm so excited to have my daughter at our, her very first church service today. Lily is here today. I heard they become teenagers, so we'll be having an altar call right after my sermon because uh, I think they turned 13. I want to dedicate this sermon today to my father. Steve Binion, the greatest preacher I know, a faithful husband, pastor, and a really good dad. Pastored two little churches his entire career. And I actually asked him, I said, it was kind of rude, but it was, there's no other way to ask the question. I said, I want your Bible before you die. And so for Christmas last year, he gave me his Bible that he had at Bible school. And so I want to speak with it, at least in my hand today. And I want to speak to you from the passage, or I want to speak to you from our gospel text, but I want to talk about the nature of the Father. And my dad and mother pastored a little church in northern Indiana, and when I was 13, they took a church in Midwest City, Oklahoma. December 1st, 1989, on my birthday, my 13th birthday, they took us away from all that we had known, to a new state, a new place that um, was difficult for us as a transition, but now I consider myself an Okie. I uh, am a sooner born, sooner bred, and when I die, I'll be sooner dead. I went to OU. I played trumpet in the band at OU, wore the polyester on Saturday, so I bleed crimson and cream. But it took a, yeah, sooner. I'm excited about Lincoln Riley. But it took me a few years as a 13-year-old trying to transition. But something made it a little more difficult. My dad immediately was put, was sued by a family in the church. A little church of 30 people, right? Had two acres of land. The church is still there. There's another pastor there now. My dad's retired last year. Not a lot of, like $500,000 worth of uh, assets. That's... When you're talking about an organization that's really not that much. And this family had sued the last four pastors. And my dad walked into a real mess. And this family took their story to the, to the Daily Oklahoman. And the Daily Oklahoman did a story December 27, 1989. Family seeks to keep ties with the church. And they, they argued that my father had kicked them out of the church. And they just want to had the church that their daddy started. And if you knew my dad, that was, that's unbelievably ignorant. He is the quietest, nicest man that you'll ever meet. My father will not argue with you. He will let you stand there and get red-headed, sweaty, arguing, and he'll just stand there and let you look like a fool. He mainly does that because he's married to my mother, and she does talk a lot, and so therefore probably why they've been married for so long is their personalities kind of work, and I'm more like my mother than I am like my father. And so please don't try to combat me, because I will react like my mother, not my father. So what started was a lawsuit uh, over a church, a little bitty church, 30 members. A year later, it culminated. The lawsuit went on for five years. So it, I was 18 when it ended. But it culminated the next year, late November of 1990, 
where she hired two Nakoma Park police officers off duty to come in on a Sunday morning and throw my dad out of church. And then they took all of the materials, it's on video, and threw it out. And uh, we had a, <clears throat> an immigrant that was going to our church from, illegal immigrant going to our church at that time. And he loved my father. He worked with horses. And he had a video camera. And they literally just videoed the rest of the day to get everything for evidence. The city of Midwest City stepped in. And because they didn't appreciate another city having their police officers crossing jurisdiction. Um, it was surreal. I mean, literally, this is lifetime movie, folks. This is real stuff. No, no, you can leave it up. And because cause, cause we've got this on video to where... This, this uh, immigrant says on camera, Pastor Binion, I have a gun, and I know how to use it. <laughs> it's so like if anybody crosses my dad or something like that, we always talk about, Pastor Binion, we have guns, and we know how to use them. <laughs> it was a, kind of like the climax of the next few years to where I sat in my mom and dad's living room because they crammed all, all the people in our little living room and my mom was tinking on the piano because we had church in our house and I'm sitting there as a 13-year-old kid going, um, we moved here from, for this. Like, why would we move here for this? As a matter of fact, for the next five years, I would go on and wonder, what does this woman look like? Because we did really didn't, Nick and I didn't really know what she looked like. And so until I got my driver's license, and so Nick and I got this idea, we want to check out what Pauline looks like. And so we knew where she lives, and so, or lived rather. And so we just jumped in our fam, one of our family cars, and we drove over there, and we literally were driving in front of her house for hours, trying to get an idea what she looks like. We get home. We did see her because apparently she noticed us and came out on the front lawn and started glaring at us. And so we're like, that's Pauline Brazil. That's what she looks like. And so we went home, and my father is on the porch when we get home, and he goes, what in the world are you doing harassing Pauline Brazil? Her lawyer called my lawyer. My lawyer called me. And why are you doing this? And we're like, we didn't harass her. How did she even know it was us? Well, it turns out our other family car was a church van. And so we had First Pentecostal Church driving in front of her house for hours... I have to say, I've only started talking about this story for the last seven or eight years and reflecting on its impact on my formation. I ignored it almost, diminished it, because I hated that woman. I watched my mom's hair go white. I watched my dad give 26 years of his life to this little church that he left last year. And last year they had 70 members. <laughs> 70. Growth, right? I watched him give his entire ministry to something that gave him very little back. And I would tell my dad, I cannot stand that woman. And he would respond, watch your mouth. She's a child of God. We will not talk bad about her. And he would not let us talk bad about Pauline. I want to speak to us today that the nature of the Father begins at forgiveness. 
And I want every father, mother, single mother, widow, child, the fatherless, the motherless, the married, the divorced, the atheist, the barren womb, the family, whatever place in life you are. I want to, first of all, I want to tell you that whatever cultural constructs of a perfect family exist outside these walls, in the church, those are deconstructed. That if you are in and inside the body of Christ, you are family. And that the nature of the father is forgiveness. And we, I want you to know that forgiveness is more than just words I say when you have done something bad to me. It's more than a reaction after the fact that of a reaction to a missed expectation. Forgiveness is more than something I conjure up that after you have really hurt me and made me bleed. Forgiveness begins before I ever enter into a relationship. Forgiveness demands interaction and community and involvement. Forgiveness demands feeling. Forgiveness is going to cost us something. But it doesn't begin in a reflection afterwards. Forgiveness is before I ever step into a relationship, I am asking God, let me put your nature on me so that I can walk into any situation and forgive. Because I know on my own merit, my own ability, I do not have the ability to forgive. But the nature of the Father is to forgive. You see, I don't understand people who do not connect God's nature with God's actions. Now, I don't want to offend you, but my dad had testimony service when we were young. Anybody ever grow up at church like that? Thank God that is over. <laughs> Oh, my God, we heard some crazy weird stuff. Now, no, no, don't let me get, get wrong. Testimony service is actually important. The community needs to be saying to each other what God is doing through the community, out from the community. Amen? But, man, my dad's church had some crazy testimonies. And they had a woman, I mean, we one time we had a guy get up and he, he gave a testimony about, actually, I think he gave a word of wisdom or something. He's like, life is like weeds. And sometimes the Lord needs to take a mower and run over your weeds. And I and sat down. I'm like, what in the world do you do with that? But we had the same woman every week stood up and said, I love God for who he is and not what he's done for me. And she'd sit down. I've thought about that. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry if you believe that. That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. Because it's not consistent with the narrative of the scriptures. God never reveals himself without acting. You cannot disconnect the nature of the father from the acts of the father. When he reveals himself, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Ra. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is my banner, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord that heals, the Lord is there, the Lord is righteousness, the Lord who sanctifies, the Lord will provide. Every time God revealed his nature, he did it in the context of acting, of actions. Every time. John, when John was writing about explaining Jesus in a very philosophical way, he said, he's the door, he's the way, the truth, the life, he's the good shepherd, he's the true vine. Actions of God's nature is revealed to us through God's actions. God's nature 
is connected to God's actions. God reveals the I am through I do. God is, therefore God does. God is when God does. God still is when God chooses not to do, which is still an action. God is because God does. God reveals his nature in his actions. So therefore, when I say I want to have the nature of the Father through forgiveness. Forgiveness implies there's some involvement, there's some community, there's some pain, there's some actions. Forgiveness is not rhetoric. It is not words I speak over a situation. It is not a reaction. Forgiveness is saying that because God's nature is forgiveness, He walks in ready to be involved. I want to understand something, that I think the nature of the Father doesn't simply begin in judgment. It doesn't begin in grace. It doesn't begin in mercy. It doesn't begin in creation. It doesn't even begin in salvation. I want to argue that the nature of the Father begins in forgiveness. And out of that forgiveness flows creation. Out of that forgiveness flows grace. Out of that forgiveness flows mercy. And yes, out of that forgiveness flows salvation. The Genesis account, God looked upon the deep and he saw disjointment. He saw that it was not connected. Out of his nature, he spoke into it grace because the nature of the Father is forgiveness. In the covenant, the Deuteronomic covenants, he spoke from the posture of forgiveness a new covenant. And then we go all the way to the, to the gospels and as God sent his son, God so loved the world world. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. God's nature is revealed in the Father's forgiveness. You see, I think we struggle with the idea of forgiveness in that nature, in that way, because we want to see forgiveness as a response to something done to me. A pre-existing characteristic that fuels every action. And in reality, Forgiveness is the Father's nature. And when we take on His nature, it will begin at forgiveness. You receive His forgiveness and salvation. And then you live in a life of sanctification to where you are giving that forgiveness away freely to others. We love to talk about the Great Commission. And our gospel text today actually reveals it. Jesus looks around and sees and he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Then he gave them their scope. And he says, I only want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Then he gave them their message. And he said this, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what you're supposed to say. And then here's what I'm going to tell you. I want you to give you your resources. Your resources are nothing. Whatever's on your back, take it. Don't take money. Don't take anything from someone. And when you step into a house, if they receive you, receive it. If they don't, walk away. And if a town kicks you out and doesn't receive your message, don't say a word. Because judgment will be stronger in them than even Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the passage that extends beyond the gospel text for today. Then Jesus gives the absolute worst inspirational speech I have ever heard in my life. Tony Robbins would be embarrassed by what Jesus said here. 
Because he calls his disciples together and says, I'm sending you out like sheep to wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Because you're going to be flogged, you're going to be dragged, and you're going to be questioned. And I want you just to be quiet. Because the Spirit of the Father is going to give you the words to say. And let me tell you, brother are going to betray brother, and father are going to betray their children, and children are going to rise up against their parents, and you're going to be hated for my name. Good luck. And then he pats them on the butt, and they go, and go team. The world's worst inspirational speech. Sometimes we get so enamored with the commissions of God that we're ignoring the screaming nature of God. That Jesus spends two to three verses talking about what to say. And he spends an entire chapter talking about how to act when those reject you after you've said what I've told you to say. Simply, if you're sharing the message of the Father, you're going to tangle with someone that's not going to receive the message of the Father. And if you put on the nature of the Father, every relationship must enter with a posture of forgiveness. Forgiveness matters. More than ever before, we need a baptism of this subject than ever before in this country. In this culture, in this world, forgiveness matters. Forgiveness mattered to the first century church when the writers were compiling on how to tell the story of Jesus and tell it for generations to come. They tell a story about Peter asking, How many times should I forgive? And Jesus said, 70 times seven. Jesus chastises Peter for cutting off the ear in defense of Jesus, saying, It's not your place to defend me. Forgive. Jesus tells a story about the debtor and saying, you need, if you need to forgive debts. Jesus, on the cross, the writers make it very plain. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And somehow that culture moved on for generations. Because when Acts, when Luke tells a story about the church in Acts, and Stephen is getting stoned, Stephen's words were, forgive them. It seems to me that the Christian message is not just what we say, but how we go about what we say. That that tells more about Christ's nature than just the words. Matter of fact, you could go through history, uh, church historian after historian will tell you that forgiveness was talked about by every leader in the church. Every church father wrote extensively about understanding forgiveness. Matter of fact, they would say, they would compare coming to the table as unforgiven as being blasphemous. It's saying, if you have enemies and you come to this table, do not come to this table because forgiveness matters that much. We talk about the Great Commission and God sending us to the uttermost part of the earth. But it seems to me 
that the Great Commission isn't what makes the nature of the Father push through darkness to expose the loving light of God. It is the change agent once it's there. But every belief system has a commission. No matter what your religion is. But what separates our commission is not just what we say, but how it's said and how we respond when it's rejected. Because that's what makes it different from everything else. Jesus wasn't the only rabbi sending disciples, missionaries. There were many rabbis in his day. So what made their message unique? How they responded when their message was rejected. And this is why forgiveness is so important. Because it's not just a reaction to a missed expectation. Forgiveness is the Father's nature that I receive and then I walk into every relationship ready to be a vessel of reconciliation and creation. It isn't an intellectual exercise. It is involvement. If you're going to forgive, it means you're going to be involved. It means you're going to get messy. It means you're going to spend time. It means you're going to get, have loss. It means you're going to have pain. Because when you walk in and say, I want to have the nature of the Father, it involves that you're involved. You cannot be passive. You cannot be separate. You cannot be distant. You have to be literally in the mud in the trenches when the father came and steps in life with us he steps in with us and so when you step into life and you say I want the nature of the father be prepared I'd love to be a part of the church be prepared I'd love to do something great for God be prepared. I want to be a good person and help others. Be prepared. I want to do something significant for God. Be prepared. I want to be a change agent, whatever that means anymore. Be prepared. I want to do something great. Be prepared. Because forgiveness is understanding that you enter into a relationship and understand the investment you're making can never be repaid. And you're not asking for repayment. Forgiveness is the overflow of the Father's nature in me that should be already present. Not because of my abilities, not because of my goodness, but because I have received the nature of the Father over and over again. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't just a few words you say at the beginning of a relationship. It's a lifestyle where every day I get up and say, remind me, Lord, I want to have the nature of the Father on my life today so that when I walk into a relationship, I walk in with a posture of forgiveness. You know why sometimes I have to pause after I've been wronged? Because I have not submitted to the nature of the Father. And I've got to come up with a halfway decent way to forgive you. And then I look at people like my dad, who I watched every morning get up, go to his job, meet a lawyer, preach on Wednesday night, two services on Sunday and do it all over again and would let us talk bad about Pauline Brazil. He had something I didn't have. 
He wasn't wired better than me. I happen to know the guy. <laughs> he had received the nature of the Father over and over and over and over. Forgiveness begins before you enter into a relationship. So as a new father, pretty excited. I don't know if you knew that or not. <clears throat> My Lily's here today. She's outside. I've been praying this week, Lord, let your preacher speak something to this father. Help me to understand, Lord, that fatherhood is about investing all that I am as the Heavenly Father works on me, knowing Lily can never repay the investment I'm about to give her. And I'm never going to ask for it back. Heavenly Father, forgive me for falling short and help me to forgive myself. Help me to forgive her for falling short and remind me once again to never ask her to repay what I'm about to give her. And Lord, help me to not make everything about her making me look good. Because my heavenly father doesn't do that to me either. As a new member of this church, I pray. Help me to understand, Lord, that any effort given to the kingdom of God is not my own. I'm a steward. No matter what is said to me, about me, no matter how high someone makes it, lofty someone makes me feel, or how low someone makes me feel, remind me, Lord, to forgive myself for feeling pride and to forgive others for not having everything right. Let me know I'm a steward, and that the investment I'm making in your kingdom. It's not mine, it's yours. Remind me that you gave me everything and didn't repent of it. Let me give that freely to your city. When I hurt others, let me feel remorse. When I freely ask forgiveness, I want the nature of the Father to remind me forgiveness demands action. You know why this is so important? You can go to conference after conference and find books on discipleship, evangelism, and how to form church culture. But in the 21st century, you know what will speak into all three of those things? Forgiveness. Because it's the separating factor that our culture needs more than anything. Because forgiveness takes trust. Forgiveness means you lose ownership. Forgiveness demands that you walk by faith. Forgiveness says, I'm just a steward. And let me tell you something. Some guy in a pinky ring and a shiny book in a show did not convince me to give my life to the church. You know what it did? Watching my father forgive. Because discipleship is about generational transference. Do we want this message to last for generation to generation to generation? 
let them see us forgive. Let others see us forgive. It is the strongest, most potent discipleship program we could ever start. Simple forgiveness. And you know what else it does? It evangelizes. Late 1700s, late 18th century, there was this enlightenment. We had this, this idolization of the rational thought. And that evolved and the church participated in this experiment. And so we started to think that we can evolve to become better and better people. And then so we can write and say, all we need is more education. It's where a lot of these programs from the 20th century, Dewey, who affected all of our public school education system, um, and a lot of other people say, all you need is education because the more you know, the the, the you will fix everything. So to just say no to drugs. Learn about drugs and just say no and it's going to get everybody off of drugs. The more you know about education. So that, 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 that impulse has come from a long time ago and it's been evolving to, to where we're going to become better and better and better. But the problem is in the early 20th century we evolved technologically too and started to observe ourselves and started to look around and realize we're not getting better. World War I happened and we started to look around and say we're, we're, we're actually kind of bad people were good sometimes but we're also really bad and then world war ii happened and then vietnam and so we're evolving around and looking around at our world and seeing that the world is an actually pretty messed up place and the humans are pretty on average pretty broken people and so you have a generation culminating in the last last part of the 20th century to where there are a reaction to modernism, a reaction to rational thought. And it was almost anti-rational thought. And it was some, some philosophers called it postmodernism. Toward the end. And it was a reaction to say, then all institutions are not um, healthy. All institutions, all truth is not able to speak. And so all institution, marriage, education, don't trust any of it. If marriage fell under its own weight of, of misuse. Um, education institutions have, have crumbled under its own misuse. Intellectual thought, rational thought, has crumbled under its own, own misuse. Politics, can't trust them because they've crumbled under its own misuse. Every institution and every fence that rational thought, the Enlightenment, had built up to say, these are the bastions of places where you can put your trust in centers of education, in, in rational thought, in institutions like marriage or institutions like family. All of them have gone to where now you have a generation that says and have had two generations. My generation is one of them as well. Why get married? It doesn't work. Why join a church? It doesn't work. Why go to school or why to have a, go to college? It, it just doesn't seem like it produces the same result. And you have politicians and we're looking at all of them and going are they are they lying well let's see is their mouth moving yes they're lying and then you have an entire generations saying we don't trust anything and then you got the church who we just love our enlightenment and our facts and our figures and that we're going to do a very 20th century thing and we're going to prove to you that God is real in 10 ways or less I got my chart here. I got my, my list here, 25 ways that Jesus is better than your God. And I've got my thing here. I've got my conference here. You're going to come to my conference. And I'm going to tell you right now, just I'm going to wave my hand up like this and say, there are 25 ways that my Jesus is better than yours. Seven ways that you can have a better life now. And I'm going to, if you follow me for $49.99, and you can rub him, you can use Jesus for whatever you want, he'll make your life better. And you've got to believe a world out there that's looking at that and goes, I don't know that I buy it. 
And we respond by saying, well, you have to buy it because the Bible says. And then the Bible says, then they say, well, I don't believe your Bible. It was written by men. And it's inconsistent. You say, well, you have to believe my Bible because it says right here. I see what it says right here. It says, no, no, you don't understand. I don't believe in your Bible. But, but the church is great. My, my church is great. No, no, no. I don't believe in your church either. What breaks through that? Your proclamations? Your charts? Your alternative facts? You know what I think will break through it? A baptism of a nature of the Father and forgive. Because it's the one thing in this culture that everyone is struggling with right now. Started about 20 years ago when I was just barely starting. I'd, I'd kind of get kind of nervous sitting around a table and hear people like talk about Bill Clinton as if he was like, I didn't. I have to confess, I didn't vote for him. I worked for the Republican Party coming out of college. So half of you can hate me for that. They didn't pay well, if that matters. <laughs> it was horrible. It was not a really a good job. <laughs> but I heard guys who would, like, literally would judge your spirituality based on who you vote for. And then we had George W. Bush, who we somehow made into this, like, Brother Bush... And then we had Barack Obama, who some, some people made Barack Obama out to be the, the, the coming Antichrist. He's fulfilling the Antichrist. I, I don't know if anybody had any of those in your life. I did. Then you've got Donald Trump. To where in this room, there is fear, a very real fear, to make your opinion about cultural subjects known. Because you know, not out in the world, in this room, you're going to be judged based on what you believe about something that at the end of the day will not change your family. I'm not saying don't have beliefs on politics. I'm not saying don't have convictions. I'm saying vote your conscience. I'm saying do we want to stand out differently in the 21st century what if there were about 400 people in Tulsa that said, no matter who you voted for, we forgive you? And we do not discredit you because you have an opinion. Because none of this is going to change the kingdom of God. At the end of the day, it's going to crumble on its knees. And all of these Twitter prophets and all these people that are giving all their comments, I've got, to, I've got to read all that. And literally, you literally need to make your opinion known. You need to stand up for what you believe. But I want you to know, in the church, you are not less valuable because you disagree with me. And I'm asking you to forgive me if I mistake you, and that if that culture is created here, it literally will be the most unique evangelism place. Because in the 21st century, the one thing that will separate the church from everyone else is if we just start forgiving each other once again and forgiving our city.
And I close with this. Forgiveness also forms church culture. Forgiveness changes church culture. I, man, I am a, my background is I'm just a Pentecostal. We went and planted a church in Austin, and Austin, our church, was similar to Sanctuary. And so when we came to Sanctuary, it was similar. We did, we were doing communion every week, and we loved that about Sanctuary. We had, um, our church in Austin never did songs over 90 beats per minute. This band never does songs over 90 beats per minute. I can say that freely because I play in this band. <laughs> it had a lot of things that we loved, so we stayed. But some of the parts of the service I had to get used to. The repeating parts. Can I get an amen in the house? But if you read through the Old Testament passage, there is a, the, the Septuagint talks about uh, the priest's job was to give service for the people, liturgia. And so the priest went by himself and would step in and do the service of the people for the people. And then Christ came and tore the veil. Then all of a sudden, the liturgia is all of us. The first century church said, we are all priests. And we all can walk boldly into the throne room of grace. All of us. And so what happens is the historical church starts believing that. And so publicly, why I love prayers of the people is because really what that's saying is, it's a naive assumption that our prayers publicly as a community are going to pray over our community and God hears them and is going to work through our community. You hear us calling. But there's also one other thing. Can you come here? Can you come here? There's a part of the service that because of my background, I'm going to hold your hand, I apologize about that, you know. But I promise we'll stick our chest out. And our stomach in. Not that wasn't about you, it was about us. But when we get to the confession of our sin, I have to confess the first couple times I did it, I'm like, you know, this kind of feels like kind of judgmental a little. And then I started to realize what it's about. It's not judgmental. It's an acknowledgement that I'm not an individual alone, that I'm a part of the body of Christ. And that brokenness is a part of our culture. Matter of fact, Brett said something. He was at a, he, we were together at this coffee with, and someone stood up and gave their nine ways that, to have your best life now. And they were like, I'm okay, you're okay. And Brett said, well, actually, I kind of look at my faith as I'm not okay, and you're not okay. <laughs> and I kind of like that. So when we stand up and confess our sins together, we're not saying we're just like, oh, we're such horrible people. It's saying that maybe today I am doing great, but I'm acknowledging maybe you're not. And maybe you're kind of okay today. And so when I look at that most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned. We're saying you and you are not alone, nor am I. That you are in a culture of forgiveness. 
And that when we stand up and confess our sins, I'm not saying as my individual person I'm confessing sins. I'm standing up as a member of the body of Christ and saying, no matter how good or bad I feel today, I'm confessing sin with you because you are not alone. And so I want to close my sermon today by doing that. Can we stand? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. One, one, one last thing. Here's the cool thing. Here's my biggest misunderstanding. Is this is called the absolution, right? I used to hate this part. <laughs> because I was thinking, no guy can, save, can absolve my sins. But that's actually wrong. It's saying publicly, Almighty God have mercy on you. And forgive you of all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen you in all goodness. So no matter what you've done. No matter where you feel. This isn't just about you. No matter how high or low you are. The nature of the Father says. And by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep you in eternal life. You may be seated.